And just a couple of reminders about some things that are coming up before we get into our lesson. And one is that we have the rummage sale, the proceeds for which are going to aid our senior high teens in going to their summer camp. And that is going to be, that rummage sale is going to be this Saturday from 9 to 2 in this room. So a couple of things. Uh, One, if you can help with the sorting and the pricing of that, then see Chris Roberts. I sent an email with her name and number and and email address about that a couple of days ago. But if you don't know who Chris is and you don't have that email, go to the information center and they can uh, get it to you. But you could contact her and she can tell you when you could come to help out with the sorting and the pricing. Also, if you have any uh, donations to make, you can do those the next two days, Monday and Tuesday, from 11 to 2.30. So you can come to the building between those hours and uh, you'll be shown to room 36 in the east wing where all that is uh, being stored. And then, come next Saturday, if you can show up between 9 and 2 and actually buy some stuff, then that will uh, help the teens uh, make as much money as possible to distribute for their trip. So we have that uh, that coming up. And then family camp. You need to uh, register for family camp uh, within the next two weeks, by May the 11th. That's Mother's Day, if that helps you to remember it. But by May the 11th, we need to know who's going to family camp. We had inserted in your program today a brochure from Double J Ranch to give you an idea of what their facility is like. Some of you have been there in the past. We've gone two or three times there and now going back again. So they have a bunch of stuff to do. Uh, That'll give you an idea of what they have to do. And if you're planning to go, then you register on your own by calling the number that's there, 800-Double-J. And you need to do that, as I say, within the next couple of weeks. Family camp is uh, mid, uh, mid-June, June 15th through the, the 20th. All right, what uh, am I going to get off my chest today in, uh, in Sunday school? I uh, am between series, and I have warned you all the last couple of weeks when we're between a series that we do for several weeks, then I talk about whatever I feel like uh, talking about. And sometimes, uh, I try to, a few times uh, within a few-year period, hit on issues that arise from time to time, and I repeat those because they are of significance in the life of the church and in the life of our church is. And so I would like to revisit one of those that I talk about every now and then every couple of years, and that is... How does one recognize a proper philosophy of of ministry so that you can recognize whether a church is heading in a good direction or not? It's something that we all need to develop the discernment to be able to do uh, because we are a church and because some of us have come from churches and uh, because we have friends and family who are attending or thinking about attending churches and they perhaps from time to time will ask, what do you think about this? So in developing your, our discernment collectively as a church in the direction we want to go, we need to make sure we have a solid foundation. And then also for uh, guidance, uh, not only for ourselves, but, but for others. I think it's important to hit those topics every so often. I'd like to do that uh, today. I'm very glad that we have our teen, teenagers in with us today. They're not glad, but I'm glad. Uh, they're in here because... Larry Castle, their team leader, has got that back problem that I mentioned uh, in our first hour. And so Larry is at home healing up from that. Hopefully in the next few days he'll be uh, completely uh, better. 
but he then obviously couldn't make it today, and it was very late notice for him to find a sub, and I said, why don't we just punish the teens by having them come into my class? And uh, my daughter, who was one of the teens, heard about that, and she begged me to find some other way than to come into to my class. She gets enough preaching from me at home, but nonetheless, the teens are in here, and really, welcome to our high-impact teens. I'm very glad you guys are here, and I think this topic is timely for them as well, because... All of us uh, ask ourselves questions like, uh, is my church doing all it can and should do to carry out the Great Commission? And depending on uh, where you are, often in what age range you are, you frame that question this way. Is my church cool enough to reach people in our culture? And everybody wants to go to a cool church. And I want our church to be cool in the right way. But we need to understand what we mean by that. I happen to think our church is very cool. But depending on who you talk to, we are way behind the times. And because we're way behind the times, we are not able to ride the wave, in their words, of what God is blessing in order for the church to grow numerically as much as it otherwise could. And so that's a legitimate area of inquiry for us. If we are really about the advance of the Great Commission, and the advance of the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, and if the book of Acts is then a description of how that commission was carried out in the first century church, and it is, and you see the advance of the church in the book of Acts, then should we not want to do everything that we can in order to see the church grow numerically? And that's a question then that many people ask. And so, the idea is anything that will get people in and anything that will get people under the sound of the, of the gospel is worth doing. So, whatever that might be, as long as it's not immoral, is, is the mantra. Now, of course, it's a given, and let me just put that aside. None of the church growth advocates out there suggest that you do things that are immoral to get people to come. Uh, Some border on that, but nobody would actually put that in print. And, you know, just for example, when you advertise Triple X Church for a series on pornography, you're coming pretty close. But nobody would out and out say that, Okay. So let's just take that off the table that we're talking about immoral means. So the question for us then is this. Is it legitimate for us to do anything that's not immoral? Everything that doesn't fit in the immoral category, is that fair game for us to do in order for us to see the church grow? It would be helpful for us if there were any passages in the Bible that address that issue. And lo and behold, there are. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. We will look at 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 in just a moment, but let me set the context of 1 Corinthians 2 for you. Paul, who wrote this letter called 1 Corinthians to the church in a city called Corinth, Paul was being criticized by the Christians in the church at Corinth. He was being criticized. And he was being criticized in a number of ways, 
Chief of those was his preaching. Paul's preaching is no good. We don't like Paul's preaching. In fact, he had to write a second letter, 2 Corinthians. And if you read 2 Corinthians, the 13 chapters of 2 Corinthians are all about a defense of Paul against all of these criticisms of him, including about his preaching. So what was wrong with Paul's preaching according to these Christians at the church in Corinth? Here's what it was. Corinth was a quintessential Greek city. And in Greek cities in the first century, one of the things that was cherished, prized, was eloquence on the part of those that spoke. Not just eloquence, but eloquence that, had, that was produced by training in rhetoric. People who had been schooled in rhetoric and thus were eloquent in the way they spoke, And then had the ability, and here's the key word, to persuade their audience. So what the Corinthians loved in their speakers were eloquent speech that could move the audience to the speaker's position. That was Greek rhetoric. And there was very rigorous training to become a rhetorician. And it was the entertainment, one of the major entertainments of the day, to go and hear those who had been schooled in rhetoric and watch them move an audience to their position. That's what they're used to. That's what they want. Now, let me just stop and ask you, in anything that I've just described about Greek desire for rhetoric and to sit in an audience and be spellbound by a speaker and his ability to move you and the rest in the audience, is there anything immoral about that? And the answer is no. Is there anything wrong with that? The answer is no. In fact, it was a form of entertainment that many people engaged in. So there was nothing inherently wrong with what the Corinthians wanted. Everybody good with that? There was nothing immoral about it. So the idea then that anything that we do in order to attract people that is not in the immoral category is fair game, Paul's now going to take the issue because this is not immoral. But it's also not consistent with the power of the gospel, we're going to see. Not immoral, but not consistent with the power of of the gospel. Now, because the mantra that many have is as long as it's not immoral, then it's fair game to do. And if you can't prove that it's immoral and it's not forbidden in a verse in the Bible, therefore it's fair game to do, because that's the mantra of many people, we need to make sure we get this right. What the Corinthians wanted was not immoral. It was fine, except that it was not consistent with the power of the gospel, as we're, we're going to see. So think about this. If you tried to grow the church in Corinth by doing a market survey, and you sent around a market survey to the residents of Corinth, and you said, what would you like to see in a church? What would they have said? Give me a dude who can 
bring it home? Who can deliver it? Quickly. And Paul knows this. He knows this is what they want. And he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians, in particular chapter 2, to tell them, I know what you want, and I am purposely not giving it to you. Now you say, who would do a survey to decide how to put a church together? Well, glad you asked. Anybody ever heard of Willow Creek Community Church? Just outside of Chicago? About 15, 20,000 people every weekend. I've been there. And uh, how did that church start in the late 70s? It started with a market survey. What would, you, what would you like to see in a church? Shorter sermons. Uh, music that's like what I hear on the radio. There's a number of things. They took the results of the marketing survey, they put it together, and lo and behold, the thing explodes. Now, does that surprise anybody? <laughs> that if you package church to the tastes of the culture, that your church will explode. And there's nothing immoral about what they were doing. So if it's not immoral, it's okay to do. Supposedly. So what would Paul say about that? Why, if he sent this survey around in Corinth and they said what we want is eloquence and rhetoric and persuasive speech, his answer would be, I can't do that and I won't do that. Not because it's immoral, but because it's inconsistent with the power of the gospel. Now, where does he say that? Verse 1, chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Here is why. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, what is verse 5, which is the reason, the so that, the purpose clause for why I didn't do this? which is so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. How is that related to the gospel? Here's how. In chapter 1, many of you are familiar with chapter 1. But in chapter 1, he describes, beginning in verse 18, what he calls the foolishness of preaching. Everybody remember that phrase? He calls it the foolishness of preaching. Not that he thinks preaching is foolish by any means. He's saying, though, that the world thinks that preaching is foolish. And the world thinks that the cross, the message of the cross, is foolish. But it is the message of the cross and what the world deems to be foolish that the world actually needs, and it is through that message that God is pleased to move the hearts of people and draw them to himself. Now, where does he he say that? Verse 18 of chapter 1.
For the message of the cross is foolishness. But notice who it's foolishness to. Do you all see this? To those who are perishing. That is, to the unsaved. To unbelievers. So I'm not going to do my market survey based upon the taste of unbelievers. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, verse 18. But in contrast to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now notice that verse 18 starts with the word for, for the message because the message of the cross is foolishness. That means it connects with what goes before. In verse 17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ Christ be emptied of its power. For, because. Here's the deal. The message of the cross is foolishness to a certain set of people, namely those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so this is the tool in my kit. It's the preaching of the cross, and yet to a large segment of those who might hear it, they say you can keep it. It's foolishness. But I've determined that it will be the central piece of my ministry, says Paul. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then it's in that context that he goes on, and many of you are familiar with it, for him to say that God confounds the wisdom of the wise. And God uses the weak things and the despised things. And God is delighted to do that, as we saw in the first hour, down in verse 29. Notice. so that no one may boast before him. So God is happy to use the foolishness of preaching and the thing that is foolish to those who are perishing because when someone is miraculously converted by the message of the gospel, then who gets the credit? It's not the slick guy up front. And it's not the slick marketing technique. And it is not that we have the coolest band. It's that the message of the cross is what appeals to those that the Spirit is pleased to move on and draw to himself. There's nothing immoral about the eloquence, nothing immoral about the rhetoric, nothing inherently sinful about it, but it's inconsistent with the power of the gospel. And so Paul says, I won't do it. And that's why then when he comes to chapter 2, knowing all of that, with all of that theological foundation now, regarding the condition of the people who need our message, and the power of that message, the gospel, Romans 1.16, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Because that's true, I will not then cloud the power of the gospel by other stuff. So, Corinthians, we're not looking to be the coolest church. And so, CBC, we're not looking to be the coolest church. I don't want to be uncool on purpose. I don't want to be weird for Jesus. You know, some people make that mistake, right? Okay, well then let's be as weird as possible, and then it'll be like a real miracle if anybody shows up. 
And everybody will glorify God. So how do you balance that then in church ministry and philosophy of ministry? If it is invalid to ask the culture, what do you want, and give it to them, and it is, if it's invalid to do that, then how do we on the one hand show the appeal of the love of Christ to our neighbors and to our culture and at the same time be very straight about the truth and the power of the gospel? How do we do both of those? And here's what I would suggest to you, friends, is that what we should do and we should actively do is something that we've tried to do and we're going to continue to try to do. And that is to break down unnecessary barriers to the gospel. Break down unnecessary barriers to the gospel. Notice that's a key word. Unnecessary. Now, as you think about your church life and you think about church in general and Christians in general and yourself, can you think of unnecessary barriers that we can put in the pathway of those who need Jesus? There are unnecessary barriers. We can teach and preach in a way that they can't understand. That's an unnecessary barrier. We preachers, we teachers, we just Christians in general in our talk with those who need Jesus, who are outside of Him, we can talk in a way that they don't get, that they don't understand. So therefore, we're obscure in our communication And if we're obscure and not clear in our communication, then the message, which we're to be all about, doesn't get communicated. So one unnecessary barrier is for us to talk in language people don't understand. And we, if we really care about the message, should should eliminate that. So we don't talk inside pool. And so I just tell you the ways that I try to do that with varying degrees of success. But... I almost never say, uh, Moses says or David says, because a person who doesn't know the Bible may not know who Moses is, may not know who David is, and so the whole time I'm talking, they're going, who's this David guy? So I will just say the Bible says, the Bible says, and then quote. Now, it's just my way of trying to remove something that people don't understand. When I refer to something in what many of us know as the Old Testament, I will say in the first part of your Bible. The first part of your Bible would predict these things that were going to come later so that nobody's hung up on why is one old, why is one new, and then I've lost them for the whole time. Okay? I, if, I, if I use a theological term, I try to define what it is. So justification, what is that? And then define it. And you could count all sorts of ways that we preachers and teachers, and then we in our language to unbelievers can be unclear in what we do. And if, to the extent that we are unclear in our communication, then it's an unnecessary barrier. Okay, that's one. Two. I got a whole list of these. It's an unnecessary barrier for people to believe, as many do, that we Christians and we churches are all about wanting their money. That's an unnecessary barrier because, at least for our church, it ain't true. So let's go out of our way to make sure people know that that, that, that notion that they have that may well be true about 
some churches is not true about ours. So how can we do that? If somebody shows up and we're passing the hat, I say, don't put your money in. If you put your money in, we don't give refunds. But don't put your money in, okay? You're our guest. You don't have to. And explain that, right? Or, uh, or in addition, we have a gift for you that we actually paid money for. But you're our guest, and we want you to have that gift. We don't want your money. We're going to give you some stuff. And the idea there is to break down that unnecessary barrier. Here's another. An unnecessary barrier is when people think that Christians are holier than thou. And many non-believers think that because they've met Christians who act that way. That's an unnecessary barrier to the gospel because it's not true. I'm not better than you. And only because of Jesus am I better off than you. And I want you to be better off than you are by having a relationship with him. But the reason I need him and the reason you need him is precisely because I'm no better than you. I'm a sinner like you are. So how do we overcome that? Here's how. We ought to say we're sinners. And we ought to be honest about the fact that we struggle. And our church culture ought to be one in which we are not just middle-aged people who need, middle class I should say, and middle-aged, middle class people who need a little tweaking around the edges because we mostly got it together. But rather our culture ought to be, this is a hospital that I come to regularly because I got to be patched up all the time because I'm a mess and I'm a sinner and I struggle. And we ought to be honest about that. And in doing those kinds of things, we are breaking down unnecessary barriers. We can and should and have tried and will continue to do that. But hear this, dear friends. The straight up teaching of who the Lord Jesus is and what he did, namely the gospel, is something that we have to give to people straight, lovingly, and directly. And not appeal to them because you got to hear my guy because he's the greatest guy. He is just so cool. When people leave, what we want them to come away with is Jesus is cool, Jesus is great. Now, here's what that means then for me, for us, any of us that are in public ministry, including music ministry. We need to be modest about what we do. That's what Paul was doing. He had a modesty about what he did. You guys understand that Paul was actually really cool? Do you know this guy was brilliant? He could have killed the rhetoricians. He could have rocked the house, as they say. He could have showed them how to persuade somebody. It wasn't, now get this, it wasn't that he couldn't. He could. He determined not to. There was a modesty about what he did so that he faded into the background and so that Christ and his cross were held up as prominent. 
You remember John the Baptist. He must increase, and I must decrease. Preachers need to remember that. Musicians need to remember that. If people are talking about you and what you did and the riff you did, they're talking about the wrong thing. If people are talking about how cool you are, whether a musician, whether a preacher, we're talking about the wrong thing. And so all of us in public ministry need to be careful that we are not in any way deflecting attention from the message and the Savior of that message. And That's what Paul was saying here. I made it a point not to come to you with what you wanted. Because my objective is not ultimately numbers and growth, says Paul. My objective is to please God. And it has pleased God to choose the foolishness of preaching to convert people and to bring glory to himself when that happens. So young and old alike, that's why we do things, that's why we roll the way we roll. And that's why we do it the way we do it. And there is a strong and absolutely necessary theological foundation to that that has God's glory and his praise at stake in how we do what we do. Now, the church growth types. When I say church growth types, some of you know what I mean. There's a whole body of literature out there called church growth literature. The journals are devoted to church growth. Whole books have been written on it for decades. If you want to get a crowd, here's what you do. And if you do this method, this will work. And they're right. You do that method, it works. If working means getting a crowd. But if working means the power of the gospel and the glory of God, not so fast. And what they will say is, well, in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19, Paul says, I have become all things to all men. Anybody remember that? That I might by all means save some. To those with the law, I became as one with the law. To those without the law, as one not having the law, and so on. So what they say is, hey, look, Paul would do anything. And here's my response to that. Um, That's 1 Corinthians 9, which we will talk about in a moment. But 1 Corinthians 2 comes before 1 Corinthians 9. I had to go to seminary to learn that. Now, I'm making a serious point, though. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 helps set the context for what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 9. He's already said, I won't do anything. He's already told them, I know what you want me to do, and I determined not to do it. So whatever he means in 1 Corinthians 9 about I become all things to all men, it cannot mean I'll do anything. Because he's already said there's stuff I won't do. So how do you harmonize those two things? They are both still centered on the centrality of the gospel message. And here's how. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul would not engage in rhetoric as the Greeks did and as the Corinthians wanted him to do. He would not do that, even though it was not sinful or not immoral, but it detracted from the power of the gospel. Therefore, I won't do it. And in 1 Corinthians 9, what he's telling us is this. I want to remove any barriers to communication of the gospel. 
And so he would actively remove barriers to communication. But it was only in the straightforward proclamation of the gospel that persuasion could occur. People are not persuaded by me or you. What we do is communicate. What Paul did was communicate. What we do is remove barriers to that communication. And then we give the gospel, and it is God and God alone by His Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, that persuades people. So, that's why we do things the way we do. If you think of it, you might pray for our church regularly. If you think of it, you might pray especially for those engaged in public ministry. For me, for our musicians, for everybody that's engaged in public ministry that we understand it's about Christ. And we don't do what we do to draw attention to ourselves. And pray that we'll have that humility. And pray that we will consciously do it that way. And then pray for God's power upon his message. Not the power of the preacher, the power of the message to change people. Now, that's one major reason we do things the way we do. Because God deserves and desires the credit, and that's the way he gets it. Now, here's another reason we do things the way we do. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 gives us a description, again, of the power of the gospel and a description of what the malady is, what the sickness is, what the disease is that the audience has that only the gospel can remedy. So Romans 1 is about the power of the gospel, as was 1 Corinthians 1, But then it goes on to talk about the problem that the gospel is the power of God to solve. And it's important for us to have a firm understanding of the problem that people have so that then we will look to the gospel as the only remedy for it. Hear this, to the extent we don't understand how bad it is for people, to that extent we can fudge on the gospel. Because If we know how bad and how desperate and how dead the condition is of those who need the gospel, then we will understand, as Paul lays out in Romans 1, the gospel is the only remedy, the only solution for that. Now, how does that work here? What does he say? Verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1 are the theme, two verses, of the entire 16 chapters of Romans. So here's the theme of everything he's going to write about now. I am not ashamed of the gospel because... It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Here's why. For, because, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So the gospel is the the, the power of God. Why? Because the gospel message says this. For, because, verse 17... In it, in the message of the gospel, is made known a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself. 
That's why it's good news. <laughs> it's good news that there's a righteousness outside of you. Now, why is that good news? Because the bad news is you ain't got none. Since you ain't got no righteousness, forgive the grammar, it's really good news that there's some righteousness outside of you that you can have. And that's what the gospel message is. And whose righteousness outside of you is available to you? Christ's. That's what the gospel is. So that's the theme. And now beginning in verse 18 comes this long explanation of the theme. In fact, so long it goes to the end of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2, and through verse 20 of chapter 3. Now, let me lay that out quickly. Theme is the power of the gospel. Why is the gospel so powerful? Because the gospel message tells us about a righteousness that is outside of us, and we so desperately need that because we don't have any of our own. And beginning in verse 18, Paul begins to lay out now the fact that none of us has any righteousness of our own. For, verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed, is being made known. And goes on to talk about then the anger of God, the wrath of God against all people because of the sin that separates them from God. He talks all the way down through verse 32 about how bad this is. And who's included in this? Just so nobody makes any mistakes about who's all included in this wrath of God under which we all abide and therefore so desperately need something outside of ourselves. Who's included in that? In chapter 2, Gentiles are included in that. Verse 14, even Gentiles who do not have the law, because of their own conscience, they become a law in themselves. Because they have the law written on their heart and they still break it, he says. What about the Jews? Verse 13 of chapter 2 tells us that even the Jews who have the law, no one has actually kept the law. And Gentiles have the law written in their heart, and they break that. And so then you come to chapter 3. Well, then what do we say? What's the advantage to being a Jew? Much in every way, says Paul. They were given the patriarchs. and To them, uh, God has given many gifts, but none of that gives them righteousness. So what shall we conclude? Verse 9 of chapter 3. Are we any different? And then he says in verses 10, 11, and 12, there's no one good, no, not one. There's none who seeks God. It goes all the way down to, through verse 18, from chapter 3 and verse 10 down to verse 18, giving quotations from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, to show that this is not only true now, it's always been true, that people, all people are completely sinful. So what's the conclusion of all of that? Look at chapter 3 then and verse 21. Remember how this whole explanation started in chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the power of God for it of the gospel for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. Why? For because in it a righteousness from God outside of yourself is made known. And why do you need this righteousness? Because you don't have any. How do we know you don't have any? Because I've just explained it for two and a half chapters, says Paul. And then he brings it full circle in verse 21. 
but now a righteousness from God. You guys see that? Apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The whole thing started back in chapter 1 in verse 17. What's so great about the gospel is this. It is a righteousness that comes from outside of you. You need that righteousness because Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. You don't have any. But now, here's the great news. A righteousness has been made known that comes apart from the law or anything that you have to do. That's really good news because you're so sinful you can't do it. To which the law and the prophets testify. Verse 22, this righteousness comes this way from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, dear friends, that's the message of the gospel, the power of the gospel. It's because it is the only message whereby the malady that all people have, that they are dead in sin and have no righteousness of their own, can be rectified, can be fixed. And the reason that God has given that message and come as man to be central to that message and to provide that righteous life that we should have lived and die that death that we deserve, the reason God did all of that is so that he would get the credit. Now, you remember in 1 Corinthians 1, we'll be done here in a moment. You remember in 1 Corinthians 1, the whole reason for this is so that no one can boast. Do you guys remember that? This whole argument that Paul makes then, beginning in chapter 1 of Romans, then through chapter 3, and continues the argument all the way to the end of chapter 11. It's an 11-chapter presentation. And when he ends that presentation in Romans chapter 11, take a look at what he says. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? And here's why. Nothing has ever been given to God that God owes anybody anything. Here's why. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. The gospel is the way it is because God is absolutely determined and God deserves to get all of the glory for it. And therefore, the way we preach and the way we teach and the way we structure our ministry and everything we do has got to be designed to make sure that there is absolutely no detraction from the glory of God. That the gospel is central and the power of God in the gospel to change people through it is absolutely displayed so that he receives the praise and the glory. To the extent that we're cool and to the extent our church grows because we got the coolest marketing survey and all the other stuff, it's then not about God, it's about us. So friends, let's make sure we're true to the gospel then. 
That's what Paul's saying. 1 Corinthians 2, the reason I didn't give you what you wanted is because I'm going to be true to the gospel. And the gospel is foolishness to some, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. And that power is described powerfully in Romans 1 through 11. May God help us to be that kind of church in everything we do and in the way we do it. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We believe, because we are being saved, that it is the power of God. Your spirit has caused us to realize what we really needed. Not a new program, not a list of rules. What we needed was a relationship with you that we had severed because of our sin. And because of our sin, it has debilitated us that we cannot then work our way to you. We cannot recommend ourselves to you. There is nothing that we can do in order to rescue ourselves from our state. But thanks be to you that you have done what we could not. And in the Lord Jesus, God has come to do what man had sinfully failed to do. You lived the life that we were to live, Jesus. You died the death that we deserve. And the gospel is the good news that what he did can be applied to us then. Thank you for that message. Thank you for its reality. And thank you for applying it to us in salvation. Help us then to believe its power. We've experienced it. Your word teaches it explicitly. Help us then to believe it and practice it as individuals and as a church. Help us, Lord, to be loving people as you were and are. Help us to be people who communicate accurately who you are and who we are. Help us, Lord, to break down unnecessary barriers to the gospel. But help us, Lord, to be wise in the methods we choose to use so that in no way do we detract from the power of the gospel and the glory you receive because of it. Help us this week to contemplate these things and help us this week to practice these things. Lord, go with us in the months and the years ahead now. At this juncture in the life of our church, as you have allowed us this place and you've allowed us this time for us to reach out into this community and beyond, oh Lord, we so desire to see mouths that now curse you become mouths that praise you. But Lord, it it will only be praise to you if we do things the way you have described. So help us to be faithful and leave the results to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.